this mean I don't have to take my watch off? And <laughs> I'm going to take my watch off. I've seen um, I've seen lots of Baptist ministers take their watch off. <laughs> oh, I will do it. Um, Dr. Brackney, thank you for your very, very gracious introduction. And I'm especially touched that you chose the prayers from the um, Book of Alternative Services. Can everyone hear me? I'll, I'll, I'll raise my voice when I get past these personal comments. Um, at four o'clock, we'll be worshipping at the chapel service um, where I'm a student at Atlantic School of Theology. And I'll be very pleased to communicate your thoughtfulness. Thank you very much. Um, I've walked for a long time with one foot um, in the Anglican Church. Um, I guess one foot here as a student um, at a Baptist seminary. My family were of an obscure congregationalist bent that never really made its way into Canada except for some places in New Brunswick. So you would look hard, I think possibly in PEI, I don't know if there are any other history professors here apart from Dr. Brackney. Um, but it is hard, to, you, you would have a hard time finding a Church of Christ congregation that was of the same genetic heritage <laughs> um, as the church that I grew up in, in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Dr. Brackney, if you've never read his book, please do, A Genetic History of Baptist Thought. Is that right? Yeah. Um, please do. It's very instrumental. One of the reasons why I really appreciated um, doing an MA here a Master of Arts in Theology, is it allowed me to discover my own genetic makeup and where I fit, as I said, with one foot in an Anglican church and another in a Congregationalist background and upbringing. It has been a great privilege to read documents of history and to discover how I am both now <laughs> um, an Evangelical and an Anglican at the same time. It's not an easy road to walk. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're, um, the, the, the two church polities do not mix. And when I was um, studying the period of history to which Dr. Brackney alluded, um, I would, the, the period of time I was looking at was the 1640s. The Baptists were growing up, the Congregationalists were growing up, the Independents were growing up, the Pres Presbyterians um, were basically the, the force at the time. The, Angli the Church of England was a diminishing force at the time. And I discovered so many conflicts which still exist. So I've discovered when I've been in um, classrooms here at Acadia Divinity College, I've heard interesting things said about Anglicans. And in Anglican contexts, I've heard interesting things said about Baptists. Um, so for that reason, I'm very touched that um, Dr. Brackney chose to, to use some prayers this morning. Um, one of the first, I, I, I arrived here actually in 2007, not in Nova Scotia, I arrived here in 1997 with my husband in Nova Scotia from Melbourne, Australia, but in 2007 I did one course just to see if I could handle <laughs> um, studying with conservative Baptists at what I thought to be a conservative Baptist college. So I, I did a test course with Dr. Brackney and I was pleased. I was very, very pleased. I, I <laughs> and on that basis, I enrolled in the MA in Theology, and yes, it did take me five years to do that. Um, the course I first enrolled in was an ethics course. I think it's required for everyone who's doing the MDiv. I'm not, I think it's required for everyone who's doing the MA in Theology. 
Um, I don't know if everyone here has taken it yet. Um, one of the projects we had to do was to take some contemporary political issue or social issue and address it. And Dr. Brackney said, here are some theological resources. Find which theological resources you need to argue your case. And I wanted to fudge and hedge and, and look at all the nuanced points of view. And he said, no, you need to come down on one side of the issue or the other. So I thought, fine, it's, it's a learning experience. The subject that I took was prostitution in Canada. Um, the court case has now actually um, changed that law. This was um, back five years ago, and they were considering changing the law. Um, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and many, many people lined up and said the law is governing prostitution. Um, should not be changed and for the sake of argument and to test my wits I argued that they should and one of my arguments was that things that are done in the dark need to be brought into the light and I believed then I, mean, I do not believe that you can address a problem like prostitution with law alone obviously um, which is uh, why I'm talking to you this morning about prayer. <laughs> um, you cannot address such things by law alone, but I was convicted that there were things that were being done in the dark and that through some changes to the law, some of these things could be brought at least into the light. The law was obviously changed. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of it. And it's still being contested. It's still fresh and it's still very, very difficult. So... Um, my t topic today has been formed at the request of, um, at the invitation of Dr. Jansen. Thank you very much for asking me here. Dr. Jansen said, would I speak about the intersection of faith and work? And I thought, yes. I ran into Dr. Clackey and the foyer this morning. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, I have 15 minutes to talk about faith and work and prayer. And I'm already a good five minutes into that, so I, I, I'm going to race right along. But I wanted to say, when I first arrived here, oh, um, so, so the, the topic which um, Dr. Jansen, Dr. Jansen said, could you come up with a topic? And I really didn't have a topic. And she had said, could you um, choose a hymn? So the hymn focused my thoughts. And then from the hymn, I looked through the scripture references in the hymn that we'll sing later, which led me to the prologue to John. Um, about light and darkness. And then from there, Dr. Jansen said, could we have a, a title? <laughs> so he, he, here we go. Um, my, my, my topic is being formed as, uh, at the promptings of Dr. Jansen. So I think it was along the lines of seeing in the dark or praying with the newspaper in one hand and the Gospels in the other. The idea of um, doing theology with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other is credited to Dr. Karl Barth, Swiss Reformed theologian of significant note. Um, I was reminded of an essay that someone had written about Karl Barth in this little book. You'll find it on your bookshelf outside. It was in my cubbyhole when I arrived here in 2007. It was actually published in 1997 by uh, a group of um, MA and MDiv students in honour of Dr. Alison Trites. Um, a number of people are, are on the back, including this person, Anna Robbins. 
1997, she has her MA in Theology from ADC and is about to begin her PhD in Theology in Wales. Um, so, Dr. Anna, Anna Robbins. So, you can do something with an MA in Theology. <laughs> but I'm not actually sure what. Dr. Brackney referred to the fact that my three sons had grown up whilst I, I've been in this community at college. And in fact, I have also grown up um, whilst I was studying here at, at ADC. So, people would say to me, What are you going to do with an MA? And I thought, you can't really do anything with an MA. It just helps you think. Um, so my MA and my studies helped me think with the church through history. Um, for some of you, your church history might begin in the 16th century. <laughs> for some of you, it may begin 2,000 years ago or somewhere in between. And you'll have different opinions about everything that happened between the 5th century and the 16th century. Um, as I said, it's not difficult having one foot in the Anglican Church and one foot um, in a Congregationalist style. Um, anyway, that, that's a story for another day. But doing an MA in theology really helped me think. And one of the reasons why I enrolled here was because at the time I was publishing a journal about policy. And one of the questions I got to was on the question of um, same-sex marriage and homosexuality. And I thought, I need more, I need a foundation. I need something that will help me bridge my faith, my understanding of the church and the life of the church and society and scripture. I'm, I've, I, I'm at a loose end here. <laughs> I need something a little more solid to stand on. And it's really hard to go somewhere and find something simple that will allow you to bridge your faith and your work or your faith and your secular vocation. It's not easily done. I tend to think of myself not... I, I, with respect to this question about the intersection of faith and life, I tend not to think about myself as a Christian in relation to the secular world. I tend to think about the church. I tend to think about what the church is and the life of Christians and how they think and how they pray and how they, how they worship and how their concerns speak to questions. And I guess more specifically, to uh, frame this in the context of the, the, the scripture reading today, um, what, what does light have to say? in the darkness. And I'm sorry, but um, I, I, I find this upsetting, but there's something I have to tell you. Um, Dr. Jansen, you said that I was going to speak about economics and business. Um, one of the ways I earn my income is as a, as a columnist in the Saturday edition of the Chronicle Herald. I have a very sort of fixed little box that I have to work in. Um, I have to write to a business audience on business issues on financial issues, on economics. And often I'm kind of pushing at the boundaries and they kind of push back and they say, no, <laughs> you've got to stay on this. So one of, the, one of the side things I go off on when I have a little bit of a chance or a, any kind of pretext, because I really don't get to deal with social issues very much at all, is the very pernicious way that um, the government's marketing agency sells alcohol to women um, there is an ageing demographic in Nova Scotia as there is in New Brunswick. The cohort of people in Nova Scotia aged 65 and older is growing exponentially and the cohort of people under 30 is shrinking 
one growing, one shrinking. Major, major dynamic. I want to say one thing about that at the end. But in the context of uh, one, of my, one of my little hobby horses, um, the Liquor Commission, or the, the Nova Scotia Liquor Corporation, is recognising this demographic shift. Um, older people tend to consume less alcohol. They upscale, they spend more on, they'll spend more and more expensive alcohol, but they'll drink proportionately less. So what does the government that gets a great big tax haul from alcohol do? They find, uh, partly, partly raise the price, find new products that, that appeal to younger people, um, find products that are marketed to younger people, and find new demographics of people who are not drinking enough, young women. Uh, I won't say any more, but this is kind of how I look at things. When I have an opportunity, it doesn't come along every day. There are things that go on in the business world that I object to. I don't usually get a chance to use my journalism to object, but occasionally I can. Generally, the government is a good thing. Generally, business is a good thing. In my own work, and I, I, it, because I'm stuck in this little box in the business pages, I have to be rather technical about how I think through my faith and my work. So I look, I look at things like, is the government using its power well or not? Is the government using resources well or not? Is legislation being drafted that favours a particular business or a particular sector at the expense of others, that kind of thing. And always, always, always I have in my mind a map, a coloured map of Nova Scotia that shows where the high income areas are, where the low income areas are, and how, my question is always, how do these policies, how do these investments in, in companies, how do they affect the people in those great big red bits? Um, which are predominantly in the southwestern part of the province and up in Cape Breton, and they're not generally in Wolfville. Though having said that, you know from your own experiences that you can have great wealth and great poverty side by side. And I think that obviously the work that the um, Wolfville um, Church group does, the, the cooperative councils, is, is, a, is a real witness um, to, the, to the church's presence in this community and how you're responding to stuff. So I, I want to get to the heart of... Um, this question about light and darkness. So Karl Barth, who was in this book, and this is what reminded me um, of um, when I was pre preparing for this talk, I was thinking about Karl Barth. I remember this book that was in my um, little cubbyhole when I enrolled. It was put there back in 2007. And Derek Melanson, who I think was from uh, New Brunswick, um, at the time that this was published, he was in Miramichi. And he chose a quote from Karl Barth to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Now, because I'm stuck in my little box in the business pages <laughs> and I can't write always, no one will pay me to write the stuff I want to write. Um, they pay me to write the stuff which I don't really care for, but anyway, that's, that's the way. <laughs> so here I am and Dr. Jansen has asked me to speak about my work and I'm hamstrung because I have to write about business. But there are some very pernicious things about business and economics, and I wanted to speak to you about one of them, and then I want to tell you something positive after that. But I have to tell you about the darkness before I can talk to you about the light. So, um, here we go. You are either pastors, or you are training to be pastors. There are some things that you can change through legislation, there are some things that you can change through advocacy and journalism. 
I think there are some things that you can only change through prayer. So my petition to you is this, with respect to the topic, seeing in the dark, praying with a newspaper in one hand and the Gospels in the other. Um, I think many of you probably receive your news, if you, if you read news, um, from an iPad or a telephone or something, <laughs> not necessarily from a newspaper. I would encourage you, if you could do one thing, put the question to your congregation, would you consider praying with a newspaper? Would you consider using a newspaper, and I don't mean an electronic version, I mean the Chronicle Herald, for example, or if it, the papers in New Brunswick, if, if you're back in New Brunswick. Um, Dr. Brackney um, borrowed from the Anglican um, Book of Prayer this morning, and one of the things that we do in the Anglican Church is we read scripture page by page by page together every Sunday through the lectionary. Um, some, of, some Baptist churches follow that, but I don't think it's customary. But you end up on the same page, so that wherever you go that week, if you run into another Anglican, or in this case, if you were to run into another Baptist, you would have the same scriptures in your mind. You may well be praying about the same things. So I would encourage you, just a, a, as an experiment, try thinking as a, about, as a congregation, praying with the newspaper. If you're using an iPod or an iPad or something or other, you can move through and you can select what you're going to read and what you're not going to read. If you all sit down and turn the pages together or have a newspaper library or something, you will end up recognising the things where God is moving and not moving. You'll see what God is doing. You'll see the darkness. <laughs> You'll know together what to pray for. I encourage you to do it. The thing I want to tell you about, because this is the pernicious end of business, but I think it is already on your hearts because it is almost unstoppable. We are um, a technologically, we, we communicate through technology. It is very, very hard, and you know this from your own pastoral experience, or you will, it is very hard to push back against all the images which are being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And you know that some people are addicted to some of those images. I'm talking about child pornography. You cannot pick up the newspaper and turn the pages and not see someone in the valley or anywhere else in Nova Scotia, almost week by week, who has not been charged with possession of child pornography. And the possession is the possession on an electronic device. If this issue hasn't come to your congregations or hasn't come to your communities, it probably will. So I would ask you, read the newspapers and pray with them. You'll see what the burdens are. You'll see where the darkness is. And you'll be able to distinguish perhaps those things that community groups can address, that legislatures can address, that community activism can address, and perhaps you'll recognise the things that only prayer can address. And I would encourage you to focus your prayers on those things. Back to the ageing congregation, and this is the, the, the light part of it. Another issue, and this is, uh, I will be winding up, Dr. Jensen. Um, you know that there is another big issue which is looming in the public, public <coughs> arena, and that is physician-assisted suicide, um, or physician-assisted death, or assisted death. The issue will not go away. It has been percolating in Canada through the courts for a long time. Quebec has just relaxed its laws to make this possible. 
the federal government will presumably contest what Quebec has done, but the door is opened. I don't know if you're hearing it, but I'm hearing people talking about this as a possibility. I was at a workshop last week um, dealing with dementia, obviously in, in, the, in the elderly uh, population and, ment and mental illness with the elderly population. And I heard people putting this out there as a possibility. So not just discussing how to care for people who suffer from dementia, not just discussing how to care for senior people who suffer from mental illness or who are lonely or frail, but there was a sense already that this was a possibility that this was something that inevitably, as a society, Canada would move towards. And so therefore you had to get ready. Some churches are responding to this issue by focusing on palliative care and encouraging governments and communities and the province to spend more money on palliative care and to invest more money on end-of-life care to relieve perhaps the pressure to change laws to permit physician-assisted suicide. This is what some people are doing. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, um, this is a primary issue for them at the moment. They have excellent resources if you would like to know more about the issue and what churches can do. My own Church of Canada, um, the Anglican Church of Canada, um, looked at the issue about 10 years ago and they're looking at it again. But I was shocked when I was at this um, workshop on, de uh, on dementia and end-of-life care. I was shocked at how quickly this idea of suicide um, as a way of terminating your life or managing the end of life or removing yourself from despair how quickly it had come on the agenda. And I really don't think the issue is going to go away. Um, for some people, it's something of, a, of an elite question, um, and it goes hand in hand with people who want to manage their RSPs, they want to manage their retirement, they want to manage their funeral, and they want to manage how they die. These are some of the issues. Uh, this is some of the narrative that you'll hear in the newspapers as you, as you read them. My guess is that this is a bit of a side issue, I mean, this is kind of an elite kind of thing, people who can actually sit around and, and, and plan for their death. Um, the, the, the great uprising and the great upwelling for this uh, uh, as a change in Canadian society is people who think that um, old age is full of despair and that it's hopeless. So the critical issue really is when people get to the point where they have lost hope, where they are in despair, where they are suffering, where they are in pain, and people who genuinely love them have no other resources to offer. The medication is failing, the comfort factor is failing, and the person is saying, I'm suffering. It's not fair. I want out. And there are so many people with good hearts and genuine intentions who actually lack any other response in the face of suffering. What can the church do? Does the church have a message? This issue will not go away. The question of assisted suicide will not go away, and neither will the fact that the older population in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and the Maritimes, and most, mostly across Canada, except in the, um, the First Nations communities, which is actually the other way around, um, the older population is growing. So in your pastoral work, you will be facing questions about end-of-life issues and palliative care and dementia and mental illness in your amongst the seniors population. It's a growing issue. You'll be dealing with it with your clinical pastoral education. Um, what is it 
that Christians can say at this point in time to this issue. And without a doubt, it is the, the, the resurrection. I cannot see what else it is that Christians can do. Christians can love, Christians can share. Christians can care for people in these situations and so can many other people. But what we have in the face of death and what we have in the face of acute suffering is a hope, an eternal hope. And we can bring hope. I don't think at that point it's a case of, well, you'll be better off. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the pastoral response, but we have hope. We have a hope because we know about the risen Lord. We have a hope because we believe in the resurrection. And we know that the God who brought us into the world is the same God who will be there when we pass on from this world to the next and who will be there as we are passing on. So I think I just want to leave you with that. This is an issue which does not go away. The political and legislative issue about assisted suicide, you're going to have to deal with. But what is it that you can say as Christians that will give hope and hope to the caregivers? Because I'm not talking here about you going unnecessarily lobbying, so that's part of it if you wish, and you can find out how to do that and the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is doing that now in Ottawa. So that's the political route. But you'll be faced constantly with people who are caring for their loved ones, either in institutions or in the home. You'll be dealing with people who are actually employed to deliver um, continuing care to the, elderly, to the elderly. And these arguments, which are going to come through the media and are going to come through from advocates, they will, uh, they will take those arguments because they speak to them. So if there was ever a time, I think, for the light of Jesus to shine in the darkness, and I don't think this is a question of evil, I think it is a question of despair and fear. I think that we as Christians have something to say here and now into the darkness of people's fears and the darkness of people's despair because people do not have hope and we have hope in the resurrection.